Today is Wednesday, December the 14th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, and that's prn.live, L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Microsoft nagging Windows 7 and 8.1 users to upgrade to Windows 10 or 11. Microsoft will soon end the extended security updates program for Windows 7, finally putting the beloved operating system to rest. The company also does not plan to offer paid security updates for Windows 8.1, which means both versions are about to bite the dust. Those sticking to the good old Windows 7 and arguably not so good Windows 8.1 are now getting more notifications with prompts to update to Windows 10 or Windows 11. The recently released Google Chrome 108 is now displaying warnings about the upcoming end of support on Windows 7 and 8.1. To get future Google Chrome updates, you'll need Windows 10 or 11. Google plans to stop updating its browser on the aforementioned operating systems alongside Microsoft, so here is an extra incentive to move to Windows 10 or 11 if the hardware supports the latter, not to mention that it will soon stop working on Windows 7. Besides, you can still activate Windows 11 and 10 using keys from Windows 7. To put it mildly, browsing the modern internet using an unsupported operating system and browser is risky. Despite that, some users will remain loyal to Windows 7 like your average Windows XP devotees. Some customers can silence the new Chrome notifications with a Windows registry value that suppresses the update prompts, but I wouldn't recommend it. Unlike Google and developers of other Chromium-based browsers who already set their minds on ending Windows 7 support early next year, Mozilla has yet to decide when to pull the plug on Firefox for Windows 7. Developers are considering giving Firefox users on the soon-to-be-dead Windows versions more than six months of extra support in the channel. Point-and-shoot cameras are back. You abandon your point-and-shoot for a smartphone? Gen Z wants it back. Smartphones have been the camera of choice for years, not only because of their convenience, but because of their excellent photo and video quality. But if you're online enough, you might have noticed something odd. More and more young people are choosing older point-and-shoot cameras to take their photos, rather than using their iPhones or even a digital single-lens reflex. The latest photography trend among Gen Z is the 2000s-era digital camera. What they want is a slightly blurry, over- or underexposed image with a classic orange date and timestamp in the corner of the frame. The trend is taking advantage of a now vintage look invoking nostalgia for a more disconnected photographic past some Gen Zs may or may not remember themselves. Of course, this is nothing new. 
Every generation has a draw to the styles and tech that came before. Look at Instagram. The app started as a way to turn your high-quality, for the time, iPhone photos into vintage-looking snapshots from the 60s and 70s. Some decried the whole thing, balking at the idea of taking a perfectly good photo and haphazardly slapping a crude filter over it. And who could forget the resurgence of Polaroid? Instax cameras brought back the appeal of instant, printable, usually terrible photos at a time, when appeal of instant digital photos had never been easier to take and share. Before the points and shoots, disposal cameras started making a comeback too. Speaking of sharing, that's another fun part of these tiny cameras. The younger generation likes that you can't simply snap a photo and instantly share it with the world. If you want other people to see it, you need to go through at least one extra step, whether that's connecting the camera into a computer or ripping the media from the SD card. The fun is researching which adapters you'll need to connect those ancient cables to your modern machines. Some camera manufacturers do still make and sell point-and-shoots, but they're not cheap. Those compact cameras are expensive for a reason. They take great photos. Instead, you want something on the uh, cheaper side of the spectrum, which means digging up an oh-so-desirable point-and-shoot produced in the 2000s. Don't go looking for them at the tech retailers like Best Buy. The points-and-shoots they sell are all too new and too modern. Instead, you can find some of these options super cheap on sites like eBay. You can find a CyberShot DSC W220 for anywhere from $30 to $50 because you aren't looking at these cameras for their quality Just pay attention to the wording in the listing and make sure they're still in good working order. Of course, you might have a friend or two with an old point-and-shoot hiding in their parents' junk drawer or at the bottom of a storage closet, which could save you some money. But while you're there, ask if they have any old smartphones lying around, too. And I wouldn't be surprised to see other popular phones from years back, like the iPhone 5 or Galaxy S5, follow suit. Get ready for everyone to try to recreate that look soon enough. I remember when I started with photography, I sought out the Argus C3. The Argus C3 was a low-priced rangefinder camera mass-produced from 1939 to 1966 by Argus in Ann Arbor, Michigan, United States. The camera sold over 3 million units, making it one of the most popular cameras in history due to its shape, size, and weight and it's commonly referred to as the brick. Come to think of it, I'm going to pull out the Pentax Optio S6 6 megapixel digital camera. What made this camera unique was its size. It fits precisely inside an Altoids tin. Why does this matter? Because I keep my camera in my pocket and I had problems in the past with the pocket camera accidentally getting switched on in my pocket. With the camera inside the Altoids box, This is unlikely to occur, and the box camouflages the camera, possibly making it less likely to be stolen. Computer science students face a shrinking big tech job market. A new reality is setting in for students and recent graduates who spent years studying for careers at the largest tech companies. Last month, Meta laid off more than 11,000 employees. 
over the last decade, the prospect of six-figure starting salaries, perks like free food, and a chance to work on apps used by billions led young people to stampede toward computer science, the study of computer programming, and processes like algorithms on college campuses across the United States. The number of undergraduates majoring in the subject more than tripled from 2011 to 2021 to nearly 136,000 students, according to the Computing Research Association, which tracks computing degrees at about 200 universities. Tech giants like Facebook, Google, and Microsoft encouraged the computing education boom, promoting software jobs to students as a route to lucrative careers and the power to change the world. But now, layoffs, hiring freezes, and planned recruiting slowdowns at Meta, Twitter, Alphabet, Amazon, DoorDash, Lyft, Snap, and Stripe are sending shockwaves through a generation of computer and data science students who spent years honing themselves for careers at the largest tech companies. Tech executives have blamed a faltering global economy for the job slowdown. The cutbacks have not only sent recent graduates scrambling to find new jobs, but also created uncertainty for college students seeking high-paying summer internships at large consumer tech companies. In the past, tech companies used their internship programs to recruit promising job candidates, extending offers to many students to return as full-time employees after graduation. But this year, those opportunities are shrinking. Amazon, for instance, hired about 18,000 interns this year, paying some computer science students nearly $30,000 for the summer, not including housing stipends. The company is now considering reducing the number of interns for 2023 by more than half. An Amazon spokesperson said the company was committed to its internship program and the real-world experience that it provided. A Meta spokeswoman referred to a letter to employees from Mark Zuckerberg, the company's chief executive announcing the company's layoff last month. Hiring plans are also changing at smaller tech companies, like Roblox, the popular game platform, said it planned to hire 300 interns for next summer, almost twice as many as this year, and was expecting more than 50,000 applications for those spots. Redfin which employed 38 interns this summer, said it had canceled the program for next year. There are still good jobs for computing students, and the field is growing. Between 2021 and 2031, the employment for software developers and testers is expected to grow 25%, amounting to more than 411,000 new jobs, according to projections from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But many of those jobs are in areas like finance, and automotive industry. Students are still getting multiple job offers, said the chief of staff for the computer science department at the University of Texas at Austin. They just may not come from Meta, from Twitter, or from Amazon. They're going to come from places like General Motors, Toyota, or Lockheed. College career centers have become sounding boards for anxious students on the cusp of entering the tech job market, and in career counselors' offices, the search for a plan B has heightened. Some students are applying to lesser-known tech companies. Others are seeking tech jobs outside the industry with retailers like Walmart or with the government agencies and nonprofits. Graduate school is also an option. This particular class 
has been a lot more savvy than previous classes. Even those who have secured job offers, they're still making sure they're networking and staying engaged in campus recruiting opportunities. In interviews, 10 college students and recent graduates said they were not prepared for a slowdown in jobs at the largest tech companies. Until recently, those companies were fiercely competing to hire computer science majors at top schools, with some students receiving multiple job offers with six-figure starting salaries and five-digit signing bonuses. An entire genre of TikTok videos has sprung up dedicated to young techies extolling their job perks and their annual compensation, with at least one highlighting a $198,000 package complete with stock option and relocation expenses. Dozens of people who were recently laid off or whose tech job offers were rescinded have posted details of their plight on LinkedIn. Some recent graduates did not get the chance to start their new tech jobs. NASA's Artemis 1 Orion capsule lands in Pacific to end epic moon mission. Orion landed safely off the coast of Mexico's Baja Peninsula at 12.40 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sunday, December the 11th. The first mission of NASA's Artemis Moon program is in the books. The Orion capsule splashed down in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Baja, California, bringing a successful end to NASA's historic Artemis 1 moon mission after a 1.4 million mile flight. The splashdown occurred 50 years to the day of NASA's Apollo 17 moon landing, the last astronaut mission to touch down on the lunar surface. Artemis 1 was a shakeout cruise for Orion, NASA's space launch system, mega rocket, and their associated ground systems. Further analyses await, but early indications are that all of this gear passed the test with flying colors, meaning NASA can likely start gearing up for the first manned Artemis flight, a round-the-moon effort in 2024. NASA originally tried to launch Artemis 1 in late August, but several technical glitches, including a leak of liquid hydrogen propellant, pushed things back a month. And then, Mother Nature intervened. In late September, the Artemis 1 team rode the Space Launch System and Orion off pad 39B at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida to shelter from Hurricane Eon. The Artemis 1 stack stayed inside Kennedy Space Center's huge vehicle assembly building for more than a month, getting some upgrade and repair work done during that stretch. Team members rode the rocket and capsule back out to the launch on November 4th, seemingly after the end of the hurricane season. However, another big storm slammed into the Space Coast on November 10th. Nicole, which hit Florida as a Category 1 hurricane, but quickly weakened to a tropical storm. The Space Launch System and Orion weathered Nicole on the launch pad and did so in good shape. Inspections soon revealed that both vehicles were ready for liftoff. That launch, the first ever for the Space Launch System and the second for Orion, which flew to Earth orbit briefly in December 2014, occurred on November 16th, and it was a sight to behold. Orion experienced a few hiccups during flight. Shortly after liftoff, for example, the capsule's navigating star trackers 
return anonymity readings, a problem that the team soon traced to dazzling by Orion's thrusters. Overall, however, the capsule performed well during its debut journey beyond Earth orbit, checking off milestone after milestone as planned. On November the 25th, the capsule arrived in distant retrograde orbit around the moon, a highly elliptical path that took Orion 40,000 miles from the lunar surface at its most distant point. On November the 26th, the spacecraft got further from Earth than any other spacecraft designed to carry humans, breaking the old record of over 248,000 miles set in 1970 by the Apollo 13 command module. Two days later, Orion reached its maximum distance from its home planet, extending the record to over 268,000 miles. Orion headed for home with 3.5-minute long engine burn during a close flyby of the moon on December the 5th. That long journey and the 25.5-day-long Artemis 1 mission finally came to an end on Sunday. The timing was appropriate, coming 50 years to the day after Apollo 17 astronauts Gene Cernan and Harrison Schmidt touched down on the moon. Cernan and Schmidt left the lunar surface on December the 14th, 1972. And no humans have been back since. Orion barreled into Earth's atmosphere over the Pacific Ocean, far off the western coast of South America at 12.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sunday. When that happened, the spacecraft was going about 25,000 miles per hour, or 32 times the speed of sound. This tremendous speed generated huge amounts of friction, putting Orion's 16.5-foot-wide heat shield to the test. The heat shield, the biggest of its kind ever flown, endured temperatures around 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit, or roughly half as hot as the surface of the sun. Shortly after entering Earth's atmosphere, Orion left again, bouncing off the upper layers of air like a rock skipping off the surface of a pond. This skip maneuver, which no other spacecraft have ever performed before, allows the capsule to cover greater distances and land more precisely during re-entry. Orion's three main parachutes deployed at 12.37 p.m. Eastern Time, slowing the capsule's descent. The spacecraft splashed down right on schedule at 12.40 p.m., about 100 miles off the west coast of the Baja Peninsula. A U.S. Navy ship, the USS Portland, was sitting in the area. The Portland will haul Orion aboard and ferry it to port in San Diego, a journey that will take about a day. NASA officials have said from there, Orion will travel to the Kennedy Space Center for in-depth inspections and analysis. The conclusion of the Artemis I caps off one of NASA's most successful years in recent memory. Among other achievements, 2022 saw the James Webb Space Telescope begin operation and start producing stunning images of the cosmos. And the DART successfully altered the orbit of an asteroid. Now the agency turns its attention to the moon and beyond. Microsoft is finally, yes, finally adding a built-in screen recorder to Windows 11 through the snipping tool, enabling users to capture videos of their desktop without the need for a third-party app. The update is being pushed as part of a phase rollout 
to Windows Insiders in the development channel and will be available once Snipping Tool version 11.2211.35.0 is installed. To use a new feature, Windows Insiders must open the app and click on the New Record option at the top of the window. You will then be able to select and refine the part of your screen that you want to record before starting your screen recording session. When you're finished, you can preview your recording before saving or sharing it with others. The company is also aware of known issues that might impact the user experience for those who already have access to this preview feature. Some users might see a slight delay between when they click the start button and when the recording begins. Others will also notice that the snipping tool app window will fail to restore itself after starting a new snip from within the app. As a snipping tool is an inbox app, which are applications automatically installed by default in Windows, all users will eventually be able to have this feature without installing additional software from Microsoft. If you're running the latest Windows 11 developer build and do not have the new screen recording feature in the snippet tool yet, well, be patient as it is slowly coming out. Widget board removes sign-in requirement. Redmond also announced that Windows 11 widget board would be fully functional even if users are not signed into their accounts. This change is rolling out to insiders in the development channel running Windows 11 Insider Preview Build 25262. In the most recent update for widgets, they are removing the sign-in requirement for the widget board and making it available to all users. Now you can get weather updates on the taskbar, pin widgets from your favorite apps, or access personalized dynamic feed without an account. Microsoft also addressed an issue where File Explorer would enter a crash loop if the widget's app package was missing after upgrading to build 25252. Starting with Media Player version 11.2211.34.0, Windows Insiders can browse their video library by folder. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we spend just a few minutes talking about the IT industry, especially that of the IT professional, and how everything that's happening will relate to us. And I wanted to spend just a few minutes looking back on this past year, and we have seen in recent months a number of layoffs within the IT industry. And this might bring some cause for alarm, some different things going through the different minds of people in regards to where is the IT industry going? Is it all going to fail? And we're just going to go back and we're just going to utilize regular, uh, you know, we're just going to go back to work. And the answer really is something along these lines. The IT industry is doing some layoffs and some of these different companies are doing layoffs for the first time or very near the first time that they've ever done it. They're looking to be nimble. They're looking to adapt. They're looking to recover from some of the different things that they've had. We can look back. Let's talk about Facebook for a moment, uh, Meta. And we can look back at MySpace. A number of years ago, they had to do some layoffs because they 
a, a little small startup came along called Facebook and usurped the role of best social media. So that was a number of years ago. And and right now, Meta doesn't have any major competitor, if you will, but one will rise up, one will come along. The IT industry is an industry that isn't going to go anywhere, though. We we see these layoffs. We see a lot of different scary things, big, huge numbers, but we're talking about big, huge numbers from big, huge companies. We can look at all of these different companies and we don't realize just how huge they are. So, yes, there are going to be layoffs. And how do they impact IT overall? Well, we're always going to need IT. Let's talk about it from sort of this different aspect. A matter of what does IT do for your company? It makes it better. It makes it more efficient. It makes it so that you can leverage both information and technology. Both of those words are intertwined. We think of information technology, but there are two different key aspects. One of them is the information itself. I will tell you that the value of tracking all kinds of different information allows you to go forward and allows you to improve the company. And it's all it's all in revolving around that data. It's all revolving around the various different statistics of what do your customers like and what do your customers not like. And that's that's a very simplistic approach to it. It's a very, very small approach to it. But all of that information that we move back and forth in a company in information technology is all vital towards making the company survive to that next level, to uh, either grow or at least keep pace with all of the various competitors around. If you show me two companies and we start to do a deep dive on those two companies, the one that's going to be more successful of those two companies is likely going to be the one that leverages the information flow that is going through the company. Just as I've described on a very simplistic basis, what do customers like? What do they not like? And we can go through a number of different variations on that, but that is going to give us that insight as to which one is going to be better. But we also have to look at technology. We have to look at the other side of that IT, information technology coin, and that is technology and how do they leverage it? Can we utilize technology to improve our bottom line? Can we use technology to automate different things? Can we put this all together and make the company better just by improving our usage of the wheel, of fire, of the printing press. Technology's been around for millennia, just in different forms. And the information technology division or part of any company is bringing the latest and greatest, the bleeding edge, the the exciting new prospects of how we can do a better job for our customers. And it brings it to the forefront. 
So information technology is going to be valuable in every company. It's going to be around. It has to be around. You show me a company that isn't leveraging information technology, and I'm going to show you people who are Amish driving buggies. And yes, they do survive, but they survive in a completely different realm than most of the rest of the world. So yeah, is it possible that a regular company in today's society, not Amish, can survive without information technology? Sure. It's going to be rare. It's going to be small. It's going to be very individualized, and it's going to be a different whole outlook, but it's not going to be a large company, and it's not going to have overall overarching impacts throughout the entire business world. So, yes, the bigger the company, the more that they're going to need IT. These layoffs, they're just shifting around. They're just moving people from one company, one big company to another big company. And that will continue for a long time to come. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. The 75th anniversary of the transistor invented on December the 16th, 1947. That's 75 years ago. The transistor, the basic building block of the electronics industry, was developed in 1947 by John Bardeen, Walter Bratain, and William Shockley at Bell Labs in Murray Hill, New Jersey. The transistor was invented at Bell Labs on December 16, 1947. Transistors are the basic building blocks for virtually all electronic systems. The transistor has been called one of the most important Inventions because transistor electronics, especially the billions of transistors on leading-edge silicon chips, transform life in the 20th century and will have even more impact in the 21st century. Purdue University played an important role in the early history of semiconductor fabrication and physics leading to the invention of the transistor. This event celebrates Purdue's semiconductor history as we look forward to an exciting new era of semiconductor electronics. Transistors are a vital, ubiquitous electronics component. Their main function is to switch or amplify the electrical current in a circuit. And a modern device like a smartphone can contain between 2 and 4 billion transistors. So that's some modern context. But have you ever wondered when the transistor was invented or what it looked like? Going way back to when Ohm's Law was first discovered in the 1820s, people had been aware of circuits and the flow of current. As an extension of this, there was an awareness of conductors. Following on from this, semiconductors accompanied the birth of the ACDC alternating current, direct current conversion device, the rectifier, in 1874. Two patents were filed in the 20s and 30s for devices that would have been transistors if they had ever reached past the theoretical stage. In 1925, Julius Lilienfeld of Austria-Hungary filed a patent, but did not end up releasing any papers regarding his research on the field effect transistor, so his discoveries were ignored. Again, in 1934, German physicist Oskar Heil's patent was on a device that by applying an electrical field, 
could control the current in a circuit with only theoretical ideas, this also did not become the first field effect transistor. The official invention of a working transistor was in 1947, and the device was announced a year later in 1948. The inventors were three physicists working at Bell Telephone Laboratories in New Jersey. William Shockley, John Bardeen, and Walter Brattain were part of a semiconductor research subgroup working out of the labs. One of the first attempts they made at a transistor was Shockley's semiconductor triode, which was made up of three electrodes, an emitter, a collector, and a large low-resistance contact placed on a block of germanium. However, the semiconductor surface trapped electrons, which blocked the main channel from the effect of the external field. Despite this initial idea not working out, the issue was solved in 1946. After pending some time looking into three-layer structures featuring a reversed and forward bias junction, they returned to their project on field effect devices in a year later in 1947. At the end of that year, they found that with two very close contact junctions, with one forward bias and one reverse bias, there would be a slight gain. The first working transistor featured a strip of gold over a triangle of plastic finely cut with a razor at the tip to create two contact points with a hair breadth between them and placed on top of a block of germanium. The device was announced in June of 1948 as the transistor, a mix of the words transconductance, transfer, and varista. At the same time, over in France, two German physicists were at a similar stage in the development of a point contact device, which they went on to call the transistron when it was released. Herbert Materi and Heinrich Welke released the transistron a few months after the Bell Lab transistor was announced, but was engineered completely without influence by the American counterpart due to the secrecy around the Bell project. The first germanium transistors were used in computers as a replacement for their predecessor vacuum tubes, and transistor car radios were produced all within only six years of its invention. The first transistor was made with germanium, but since the material can't withstand heats of more than 180 degrees Fahrenheit in 1954, Bell Labs switched to silicon. Later that year, Texas Instruments began mass-producing silicon transistors. First, silicon transistors made in 1954 by Bell Labs, then Texas Instruments made first commercial mass-produced silicon transistor the same year. Six years later, in 1960, the first in the direct bloodline of modern transistors was made again by Bell Labs, the metal oxide semiconductor field effect transistor with the acronym MOSFET. Between then and now, most transistor technology has been based on the MOSFET, with the size shrinking from 40 micrometers when they were first invented to the current average of being only about 14 nanometers. The latest in transistor technology is called ribbon FET. The Technology was announced by Intel in 2021 and is a transistor whose gate surrounds a channel and the tech is due to come into use in 2024 when Intel changes from nanometers to the even smaller measuring unit angstrom. There is also other tech that is being developed as the years march on, including research into the use of 2D materials like graphene.
John Bardeen, Walter Brattain, and William Shockley received the 1956 Nobel Prize in Physics for their work in the development of the transistor. They are also honorary members of the IEEE. To mark the transistor's 75th anniversary, the IEEE Electron Devices Society is holding seminars and panel discussions at IEEE conferences, as well as presenting webinars, giving away prizes, and organizing other events from now until the end of next year. I asked Dr. Rebecca Mercury, who is a member of the IEEE, to tell us more about the organization. Uh, you mentioned the IEEE, and I would like you to give a little background to talk about what is the IEEE, and I'm going to ask you this question. How many women are in the IEEE? That's a good question. The IEEE is a longstanding organization. Um, it's resulted as the merger of the IEEE with, there were, there were a number of engineering organizations that merged. And I think this was about 75 years ago. And the IEEE is the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. Um, and it is a nationwide organization. Anyone can join. You don't have to have certain qualifications to join. And student memberships are very inexpensive. So anybody can join as a student in college, again, no matter what their major necessarily is. And so when you're in the IEEE, you usually also join a specialty subgroup of which there are many dozens of, uh, of which I'm in the computer society. So there's the IEEE and the IEEE computer society, which is a subgroup underneath the IEEE. The Moore project is actually within the subgroup of broadcast technology society. So, or broadcast, yeah, the broadcast technology society. So it's the IEEE broadcast technology society, which covers radios and things like that. So, so there are many, many, many different groups. There's a laser optics group and, you know, all sorts of different groups underneath the IEEE. Um, but as I said, the most important thing that the IEEE also does, in addition to education, outreach, and, you know, trying to, to form student groups so that people have a supporting environment when they're in engineering school, um, but one of the most important things that they do is the standards committee, which rules on um, create standards for some of the most important technologies of the world. And, um, and those standards, um, if you are a member of the IEEE, you can join the IEEE Standards Association. They call that the SA. And, um, and then when you're a member of that, you, they don't have to vote on you or anything. You just join. You may have to pay something. <laughs> so, but, so each of these different groups, you pay some fee in addition to your IEEE membership fee. Used to be back in the day, the companies would pay for you to be a member, but now that's very rare. So you just pay for it. It's not that expensive. And so you join that and then you can join different groups of the standards association to opine on the different technologies. Rebecca, how many females are in the IEEE? Quite frankly, I don't know. There probably is some statistic about that. But I can tell you that at our IEEE Computer Society meetings, when we used to have them in person, I would individually count the number of faces that I could see um, in the room. And it was usually we did not achieve a 15% 
Um, and this was the this is also a joint meeting of the ACM, the Association of Computing Machinery. So usually I would consider 15% critical mass. And, you know, so out of 100 attendees, if 15 women were there, then I would say that that was good. Often we didn't have that many. Shouldn't so, it be 50-50? Uh, at least no not in any not in not by any stretch of the imagination is the membership of the anybody can join it so you just pay your fee so so i there is now let me i think this is very important i would like to contrast this with the audio engineering society of which i am a life member okay i've been a member of the of many of these organizations since the 1980s. So if you live long enough and pay your dues you know, continuously, you will become eventually a life member. So I am a life member of the Audio Engineering Society. And in fact, when I started, when I joined the IEEE, uh, when I joined the Audio Engineering Society, which is not a part of the IEEE, um, I was working at RCA Laboratories when I joined all of those organizations, actually. So many people joined in college. But... Um, what is important about this is that audio engineering was going along, you know, so there's there's a lot of a aspects to audio engineering. It has to do with sitting, which is my brother's, was one of my brother's fields. He was an EE, a computer engineer, and also an audio engineer. So, so you're sitting in front of a mixing board and you're mixing, you know, sound recordings of, you know, famous singers, musicians, orchestras, whatever. You're going into big concert halls, setting up equipment, but you're also maybe building this equipment and you're also maybe um, writing software for it these days. So at some point, the and I'm saying this is maybe about 15 or 20 or so years ago. The, the Audio Engineering Society started featuring talks by the women audio engineers, which were scant few. And they were really encouraging the, that the women who wanted to go into audio engineering form their own groups. So they're sort of subgroups or auxiliary groups. One's called Sound Girls. There's a whole number of them. And they show up at the conventions. They give them a, a booth where they can, you know, hand out, you know, literature and maybe a bandana or something. And, and they're really encouraging the audio engineers to get these jobs um, out in the recording industry and all these different places. And they have gigantic panel sessions now where there's like eight women who have been audio engineers for, you know, like maybe 30 or 40 years, but nobody really knew because you never really see the audio engineers. You just assume they're all guys. So, and there's major television, major movie studios where the head audio engineer is a female. Who would have guessed? So all of a sudden I started seeing more and more and more women showing up at the audio engineering conventions. But that's because they decided to be proactive and to promote the women and to make sure there were panel sessions of women or panel sessions where, okay, it was a guy who was interviewing a woman. So they were bringing them to the fore. So they were no longer the hidden figures and it was feeling more friendly for us and we could attend and see other friendly, not that the men aren't friendly, but we would see other friendly faces of our own gender. And I must also say that people of, you know, change genders, transgenders, um, there's some very famous audio engineers who are transgender and I won't name names, but we know who they are and they are recognized as such. So, so audio engineering is, is open to all 
genders of every type. And I believe that all engineering can be exactly the same way, can be open to all genders and treat everybody equally. And that is really an important thing. So thank you for bringing up that subject. Rebecca, thank you very much for your comments on that. You're a perfect role model. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. Hello. And last week, I, I forget, we did the last, the, the, the last, last minute, last last minute. minute shopping, yes. okay? Yes, and now we're in the last 30 seconds, and I'm going to start with something that really puts the wind out. This okay. is really pre-snowfall for anybody who's out there, and I hope you had it in time, because if not, you're late. This is the Ego Power Plus 600 CFM backpack blower. Your word on your backpack, the battery goes into the backpack. It hinges up from your wrist. You can walk around for hours swinging the rod on this thing, and it doesn't make you tired. It shoots up to 145 mile per hour wind out the tube. Okay, all right. Uh, and uh, that battery is good for anywhere between 40 minutes and two hours, depending on how fast uh, or continuously you're blowing it. You won't sure. get winded directing it. Uh, the harness really makes it easy even for an old man like me to carry. <laughs> All right. Uh, and uh, the swapping the battery, you can do it yourself in about a minute. Uh, okay, nice. Uh, they also, and this is not here yet, but it's very thematic, are setting an Ego Power Plus 24-inch self-propelled two-stage snowblower uh, with power. Now, this has skid shoes. We've got a gravel drive. Yeah, you know okay, how many yeah. things you can destroy with a snowblower spitting gravel at everything? <laughs> so now yeah. help help me out because this this does raise a question I have. Yeah. W what is the difference between single stage, dual stage, and triple stage snowblowers? Single stage, the thing that picks the snow up is also the thing that shoots the snow out. Okay. Okay. In double stage, the thing that picks the snow up sends it to the input of the thing that blows the snow out, a second stage. Mm -hmm. In triple stage, that's usually a term that refers to the motive mechanism where they are self-propelled. Okay. So, so basically, if you... I don't know. You live in you live in some of the lower states. You're only going to be interested in single stage or double stage. If you Buffalo, New York, but they probably need like a seven stage from a few weeks ago yeah, when they got the four feet of snow. If you only get two inches of snow and it's a, it's a paved driveway, you're okay with anything. But sure. uh, you know we've got gravel and we live in the blizzard belt. So the blizzard I, belt? I never the, heard that term before. Okay. Okay, uh, let me go over this as much as I can. The sure. skid shoes lift the base of the thing okay. above the gravel. It mm -hmm. kind of slides yeah, on the yeah. adjustable height. Thick tread tires. It throws snow up to 50 feet. The intake, in case yeah. you get a lot of snowfall, 20 inches. Okay. 20 right. inch intake. Uh, the thing weighs 150 pounds. It has separate speed controls for the auger and for the self-propelled travel. Okay. Uh, where you have a unit that's self-propelled, ours is, and ours is Marty pushes it. Uh, <laughs> there's an auger clearing tool riding along the top of the scoop. It's just smart enough to make sure everything is off and unmoving before you try to clear it, any kind of blockage, or you should be. Uh, it also offers a single reverse when it's self-propelled, but the one I'm getting isn't. 
24 mm -hmm. inches wide, 20 inches tall. It's going to get the snow out of the way without spit and gravel. That's all I need to know about this one from Ego. Okay. All right. Bad, battery powered. And, and that, you know, that's kind of cool. Uh, let me go into the something that is uh, less fun. This is from Jion. It's called Purabar. It's an interesting gizmo. I should have one here somewhere to show the audience, but it fell off. <laughs> uh, hey, show the one? audience. Yes, me. <laughs> yes. You. Here we go. It's a bar. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of square. Uh, and they're telling me that it's for disinfecting surfaces, but in good conscience, you need to know that its method for doing so raises some concerns. Mm -hmm. uh, that little rectangular solid, kind of like a Toblerone uh, sleeve. Mm, uh, okay, you yeah. You twist the middle, turn on and off, push button sets the exposure mode, it generates ions. Remember this from the, the pandemic? Yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. That means ozone. Ozone is known to irritate breathing passages, can also result in some level of exposure to hydroxyls, which is an even worse irritant. Yeah, yeah. So if Purabar solves a surface pathogen issue for you, it's handy, but take care to not breathe the air around it, or at least get a good flow of fresh air. Uh, so, so is that the only uh, the only virus item you've got going on? Oh no, no! UV seed is a very cool little thing. You can you, put it on the back of your phone. It UV works with an app. Seed? Yeah, I'm sorry. UV C E E D. Capital U V C. Oh, okay. All right. All right. E E D. Okay. All right. Um, it it it's got a, a UV LED in it, but it's using a kind of artificial reality. It's enhancing the video the phone sees. You set it for the target surface contagion that you want to kill, mm -hmm. and you set the degree of kill that you want, and within a few seconds, depending on your distance and all of that, within a few seconds, uh, you'll see the video change on the screen mm -hmm. to show you disinfection happening and then completing. It took me about 40 seconds total to do my keyboard and trackball in a total of five or six moves. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty fast. It's pretty easy. That's UV seed. We'll talk more about it next year. Okay. All right. So so you're not keen on the first one, uh, the pure, the pure bar. bar, but you, the, yeah. this UV seed. It, it, it does what it's supposed to do, and it does it in a proper way. Nice. Okay, because this is you've gone through a lot of these. We've had your your Hall of Shame. Hall yes. of Shame. Yes, yes. So yeah, we. I, I'm I'm glad to hear that people are starting to catch up with this stuff. So there's there's going to be more. You know, you did the last thirty seconds of shopping. What next week we'll do the the last ten seconds of shopping. Last ten seconds. Yes. Okay. <laughs> As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winston. You're listening to Computer Talk Radio. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Tech Ed Connect, formerly the Westchester PC Users Group, meets Thursday, January the 5th, 2023, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, January the 6th, meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi, 
Website is acgnj.org. King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, January the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. Phone number is 347-278-7320. New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, January the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, January the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is limac.org. Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, January the 26th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is bcug.com. The chill of winter has finally arrived. There are many less fortunate people who don't even have the basic necessity of a winter coat. You can donate winter coats to those in need at many of the donation sites near you. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy. Until we meet again, same time, same station next week.